Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Extraction Podcast. I'm Alex Hamer. Today's show is looking at the world's move towards lower carbon energy technologies and how this might affect various commodities. Our guest is the Head of Commodity Research at Legal and General Investment Management, Nick Stansbury, who walk us through what this transition is and the various risks and opportunities involved for investors. So Nick, firstly, what is the energy transition and how does it affect the oil and gas industry? It's great to be with you. The energy transition is the process of disrupting and changing and transforming the global energy system, the system that is functionally the engine room of the world economy that powers our economy and every sort of capital activity. Changing that energy system from one that is reliant upon and dominated by fossil fuels, oil, gas and coal, into an energy system which is much more sustainable, uh, where the role of fossil fuels, particularly the role of those most carbon-intensive fossil fuels, shrinks over time uh, as we move towards an energy system which is decarbonized. The energy transition means a process of massive disruptive change. We, we know historic energy transitions. We've, we've got two broadly in history that we can look at as precedents. The first was the move from biomass, the burning of wood and things like charcoal, uh, towards coal becoming the dominant source of energy, taking uh, just over 50% of the primary energy mix. We know that was a transition that took about 100 years from start to finish, coincided with the Industrial Revolution. The second transition, uh, some people would think, starts at the uh, discovery of the spindle top. Uh, well, the first uh, uh, tax and gusher was the arrival of oil and gas into the energy mix. And that transition, we think, was a bit faster. It took something like 70 years from start to finish. We know this third energy transition has to be much, much, much faster than that if we're going to get to an outcome that is anything close to uh, consistent with the objectives of Paris. Uh, we think the energy system needs to transition over about a 35-year period, so roughly twice as fast as any energy transition has happened in world history. We think uh, the energy transition comes with significant uncertainties. Uh, there are downsides for investors as well as upsides, uh, risks and opportunities. Uh, the oil and gas industry is deeply affected by it. Uh, and I think we think of those effects in three ways. The first is to think about the uncertainty. When we look ahead at the future, particularly for oil markets, we, we can see plausible reasons over the next 35 years to believe that oil demand might grow from where it is today, about 100 million barrels, to something like 160 million barrels. That's where we get to if we extrapolate very long-term trend growth rates. If we take middle-of-the-road, business-as-usual type forecasts, forecasts consistent with global warming of 3.5 to 4 degrees, uh, we end up in an oil demand that plateaus in the early part of the 2030s uh, around about 110, 115 million barrels a day. But we also run uh, through our modelling and other people who try and tackle the same question, scenarios which are consistent with Paris, which keep global warming to between one and a half, very hard number to get to, and two degrees. Uh, and under those scenarios, different forecasters' estimates different. Our modelling gets us to around about 60 million barrels of oil uh, per day uh, in the late 2040s by 2050. In other words, the industry faces a disruptive uncertainty ahead of it when it comes to its primary market, that is oil, that is essentially 100 million barrels a day, 160 on the upside and 60 on the downside, which is about the same size as the total market is today. In other words, for one of its two main products, that is uh, petroleum products, uh, the industry faces a demand uncertainty window equal to its current market size. 
the most important commodity in the world, that's arguable, but I think it's the most important commodity in the world, faces uncertainty over a 35-year time horizon that is the same as its current total market size. So that's the first thing for investors. We think the energy transition comes with massive uncertainty. And uncertainty creates opportunities, it creates risks. There are definite risks to the downside uh, for the oil and gas industry, but particularly for oil. So we're big believers in the future of gas and the role of gas uh, as a bridging fuel, as a transition fuel for really quite a long period of time. But for oil markets, uh, falling demand, uh, even flatlining demand, uh, comes with a couple of consequences. The first of those uh, all other things being equal, is lower long-run prices. Lower long-run prices. Uh, again, it's not a projection. Nothing about this is intended to be uh, advice, but we think that the magnitude of that, it looks like roughly a third. Uh, long-run oil prices being about a third lower in a Paris-consistent world than they are today. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that upstream margins fall exactly proportionally to that. We think there are significant risks to average profitability in the industry when it comes to upstream oil extraction as a consequence of this change. But there are also opportunities, and potentially very significant opportunities. Uh, We see a material role for green molecules in the energy transition, things like hydrogen uh, and bioalternatives to liquid fuels. Uh, These are things that lie right at the very heart of the core skill set of particularly big oil, uh, and there are areas where expertise is, is scarce. It's hard to come by. Uh, and we can see a really significant and potentially quite exciting role for large oil companies, large oil and gas companies, to play into that uh, transition in those areas, which are really clearly things uh, that they have within their core area of competence. We're very excited about that. Uh, we're also very excited about what this means for other industries in resource extraction. Uh, the most obvious commodity that we talk about is copper. I expect you may want to come on to ask me some questions about that sort of thing. So, so I won't talk about it too much now. But we think there are some commodities in the in the commodity spectrum uh, we, where the energy transition is really potentially quite transformational for the economics of extracting those commodities. So th- that, I think, is how we think about the energy transition and its impact. We think it's disruptive. It creates a lot of uncertainty. We think it comes with potential downside risks, potentially very significant downside risks uh, for some participants uh, in some parts of the oil and gas industry, uh, and probably general downside risks for everybody, although we think uh, there are going to be relative winners and losers, and that spectrum could be quite large. Uh, and we think there are going to be some fairly material opportunities that are created for those companies that are far-sighted, uh, that are prepared to take some risks, and that are placing their bets in the places where there is real opportunity to benefit in a rapid transition like the one I've talked about. Sure. And I think the interesting move at the moment is divestment move, where a, a small part of legal in general has, has sold out of companies that have not disclosed enough of their, their climate risks, so ExxonMobil, for example. But for a general investor, if I held Shell, BP, a few mid-caps, should I just sell out now? You know, Should I, should I take my money and, and look for something a bit greener for the next 15, 20 years? So I, I can't answer that question directly uh, in terms of saying what an investor should or shouldn't do. Sure. But we can think about that in, in, in broader terms. So a few things to say. First of all, in general, uh, when thinking about it at a sector level, uh, we are absolutely not believers in sector-wide divestment. We don't believe that the right answer for responsible investors is to exit this sector uh, for a number of reasons. One, Uh, Whilst the energy transition does create risks for oil and gas and really potentially quite material risks, we think there are likely to be big, big 
uh, gaps opening up between the performance of relative winners and losers in this space. Uh, Some companies are absolutely likely to be big relative and absolute losers if certain uh, scenarios play through as we think they might. But there are other companies uh, which are already starting to take really significant action to their portfolios today, uh, which recognize these risks and are setting up their uh, caps allocation strategy and caps allocation frameworks in such a way that they clearly deal with these risks and are clearly engaging with them. And they're setting themselves up to not just be relative winners, but potentially absolute ones too. So, so we, we don't believe in divestment in aggregate. Uh, and, and that's first because we don't think it necessarily makes sense from an investment perspective. We're also not sure it makes sense from the perspective of uh, responsibility and stewardship. We, we don't think divestment, uh, if, if all responsible investors in the world were to divest, we would be likely to have any material impact on the supply side for oil. Uh, so we don't think it would do any benefit uh, to the world. And we think it would probably, in aggregate, reduce the level and quality of stewardship and governance that goes on at many of these companies. Uh, if every responsible investor who takes their governance and stewardship responsibilities seriously sells out of all of their oil and gas holdings, then what we are doing is passing the stewardship baton on to people that, by definition, have lower standards in these areas. So we think, actually, those investors like us who take uh, who, who think we take stewardship more seriously, much more seriously than average, who, who think we're uh, real relative uh, strengths in this area, we want to hang on to those holdings because we think we've got a really constructive role to play in stewarding these companies. And I mentioned the Future World Fund has sold out a few companies and put some others on notice. What's the, the wider situation at LGIM? There's a lot of the money that still doesn't consider these Paris goals in terms of investment. Are you working to change the mandates there? So there's, there's a lot in that regard uh, that, I, that I'm not in a position to talk about. It's either not my specific area of responsibility or, or I'm not in a position because of client confidentiality to talk about it too much. There's a few things to say. So first of all, um, whilst the divestment decisions, the decisions to sell those companies uh, applies to, to all the future world uh, funds, the, the, the full range of our future world funds, uh, we will also vote against chairman in all companies. Uh, across uh, in all of the affected companies across all of our fund range. So it's a very significant uh, stick in terms of the voting consequences. Um, in, in terms of what we're going to do in all funds, remember that lots of the money that we manage for our clients is managed on their instruction uh, to target certain specific outcomes or to target and follow certain specific portfolios or benchmarks. Uh, under those circumstances, we can engage with our clients around what they might want to do in terms of the instructions they give us. Uh, but in many of those uh, portfolios, um, we're an instruction follower. So we do uh, what our client wants us to do. Uh, so unless those instructions change, uh, in many of our funds, it's unlikely to see the investment decisions that we make change uh, simply because of the nature of the mandates that we run. But that said, uh, there is clearly significant momentum building behind the broader hypothesis that the energy transition creates real risks for some companies and that therefore, if steps can be taken to demonstrably de-risk future returns by changing the allocation that exists within those sorts of index-type mandates towards some companies and away from other companies, that, that there seems to be momentum building behind this as a strategy, as a way of responding to the energy transition. Moving back to copper, it's been a real pick as miners and mining investors have looked for energy metal opportunities. We had the cobalt and lithium run in 2016, nickel in 2017, 
and through that, copper has been a strong theme as a broader play on the energy transition. Why do you think copper is important, and what kind of company do you think is best placed to benefit from this? Copper is a pretty magic metal when we look at its characteristics. Uh, so some, some of the previous boom and bust cycles that we've seen, some of these green metals, lithium, cobalt, uh, as two examples, uh, they're both hugely important commodities uh, to the energy transition. There's no question about that. Uh, but they don't have the same underlying fundamental characteristics that make copper so interesting to us. Uh, and there's a few things to think about. One is the ease of substitution. So, so whilst with cobalt, um, we, we've looked and people are very aware, I think, of the substitution pathways that exist around thrifting. Uh, with copper, the substitution pathways are pretty limited and come with some fairly obvious disadvantages. Aluminium so, does catch fire. Yeah. Aluminium, uh, if, you, if you don't build your aluminium wiring carefully, yes, there can be some quite big bangs. Uh, this can be quite dangerous. Uh, it's also just fundamentally not as good. Uh, copper is uh, extraordinary when you think about its fundamental characteristics as a metal. So we think actually in, in a world which cares more about conservation of energy, and we think that is one thematic that uh, really clearly comes out of the work we've done on the energy transition, that conservation of energy, energy efficiency, is absolutely key to getting us towards those Paris goals, that actually copper becomes more, not less important in that sort of a world. The attractiveness of substituting out of an incredibly efficient conductor to a less efficient conductor is difficult calculus uh, to make in that sort of world. I'm not saying it won't happen, uh, but actually I think the the... the uh, trend of substitution may start to work the other way in a future, in, in what we think of as a future world, as a Paris type of world. Uh, there are some other areas where uh, it, it, it's pretty obvious that even if you assume quite a lot of thrifting over time, a lot of uh, savings in terms of the intensity of metal required, uh, things like solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles, just the general electric infrastructure that is needed in a world which electrifies with green electrons the sheer magnitude of the pickup you have in copper demand is really huge. Uh, we, we've been looking at some numbers uh, and sort of trying to back it out. Uh, and again, uh, estimates vary. Different people try and do this calculation and come up to different precise numbers. But we think you might see cumulative demand over the next 35 years, 30% higher or more for copper, just from the copper that is required to be embedded in the electric cars, the wind turbines, the solar panels that the world needs. And some reasons actually to believe that that number might even end up being on the conservative side. So for copper, very hard to substitute. Uh, the attractiveness of it in terms of fundamental characteristics, very high. Uh, the demand side transformation from an energy transition, really, really big, really significant. And the underlying geological characteristics, really, really attractive. We, we've seen all sorts of recent events have helped us to uh, re-establish in our own minds the, the, the clarity around the geological challenges that are associated with mining copper. That there just aren't lots and lots of really good, easy to develop, low political risk jurisdictions with some great undeveloped copper mines in them. That just doesn't exist in the world. We're going to places which are more complicated, further away from urban areas, in higher political risk jurisdictions, with more complicated geology, with lower grades, and with more associated environmental challenges around deleterious content. All of these things are supportive of the idea that over time the copper cost curve starts to steepen. And so we're, we're great believers uh, in, in a long term, and it's very important to be, to be clear about the long term nature of this, a long term uh, energy transition driven cycle in copper. Uh, we think it's really hard to derail. 
we understand investors will get overexcited about it and then underexcited about it over time. Uh, but but through that, we're big believers in the structural dynamic for the reasons I just outlined. And, you know, someone listening to this might, might sit there and say, oh, look up the copper price right now, and it's well under $3 a pound. At what point do you think it can go back to its fundamentals and, and get over this sentiment-driven low? So I'm, I'm not sure I quite buy the premise of the question in as much as I, I think the price is, is not totally not reflective of the fundamentals. So uh, what, what we're seeing at the moment in the world uh, is clearly some very significant macroeconomic questions being raised about the future uh, pathway of the world in terms of many of the things which drive copper demand. So, so there are real questions around the demand side for copper. Um, and with copper, in, in a world where we go to reasonably material oversupply, the price tends to fall towards cash cost support. And we're a reasonable way away from that today. We're a reasonable way away from the 95th percentile of the cash cost curve, which tends to be where copper mo- sorts tends to move to trade in that sort of a region in a world where we're oversupplied. Now, do, do we see an oversupply situation today? No, we don't. Uh, we see lots of risks on the supply side. Uh, that in a normal market would probably be starting to drive upside to copper prices, I think. But given the the, the genuine demand-side risks that exist, and I think those risks really are genuine, I, I understand. It m- may not agree with the price that copper is trading at today, but I understand why it's there and the reasons behind some of the price moves we've seen. That said, uh, you, you could conclude that, that the consequence of that is that an opportunity is being opened up in front of us because we're looking at a future window of demand, which is potentially really large, really exciting. But even without the energy transition, is likely to be relatively exciting anyway. A demand growth for copper tends to be incredibly stable when measured over long periods of time. So even without an energy transition, I think the future, the, the future looks pretty bright for copper anyway. I think the real risk is that it becomes a self-fulfilling uh, there's a self-fulfilling undoing nature to this. Just to say, if every copper mining company looks at exactly the same fundamentals that I've just laid out, uh, decides that the current copper price isn't the right indicator to use on whether or not they should be incentivized to develop new projects, and everybody goes and builds lots of great new projects, then that might start to undo some of the constructiveness around the future cycle in copper prices. I'm not there yet, but I'm very conscious of that as a risk. Sure. We've talked about the, the quite obvious potential winners and losers of the energy transition. So oil, copper, gas, somewhere in the middle. What's your commodity that could potentially do really well that isn't really, you know, on the main stage right now? Yeah. Okay. We, we have five commodities, which we call our future world focused commodities. They're the commodities that we think uh, in a world which takes those sorts of necessary measures to get us towards Paris are the ones which are the real big relative winners. Um, so, so those commodities that are, that are on that list for us is copper, uh, natural gas. We see nickel, we see platinum, uh, but we also see uranium. So in, in our modelling, it, it's far from certain, but, but in most of the scenarios that we run through to get us to a Paris-type world, electricity in the future is a partnership between nuclear and renewables. They work together. They're not substitutes for each other. Uh, and in that sort of a world... Uh, which has a, a reasonably large role to play for nuclear power, we're going to need to incentivize some more uranium mines. Uh, that, that doesn't happen tomorrow, uh, and a lot of that latent capacity is, is there in the industry, but it does need to be incentivized properly. 
Uh, and a lot of people, I think, have written off uranium uh, because they think that Fukushima has put an end to the world's demand for nuclear power. They look at the dynamics here in the Western world where they see uh, European nuclear power stations are holding on in there for the time being. Germany's decided to walk away. Maybe France may walk away at the margin at some point in the future. They see the ones in the US really struggling because of the natural dynamics around gas. But they miss the fact that in Asia, nuclear power is a tremendously attractive option given the relative differences in fuel costs. So Asia pays a much higher gas price, for example. And in that sort of world, nuclear power is very, very attractive. And I think that's why we're seeing so many of the nuclear power plants in the world being built in Asia. So for me, it's, it's not on the main stage. People have forgotten about it, I think. Uh, but, but uranium might come out to be a bit of a surprise winner through the energy transition. And not, not many people, I think, are thinking about that. Great. Nick Spansbury, thanks for being on the Extraction Podcast. Thanks very much.